0: The person who has that story like fizzing inside of them like a little bottle of champagne and just like needs permission to pop their cork, like this is absolutely for them.
1: Hello. Welcome, greetings, and thank you for joining us yet again at uh, the Feminist Present, where we use the gift of feminism to figure out what's going on. I am Laura Good, and I'm Adrian Dobb. I have no chill about our guest today. Like as I listened to the rough cut, I was like, I think I've just gotten more practice since we interviewed Cheryl Strayed. That like it's gotten a little easier to be chill, but like I had no chill about Melissa Febos.
2: I I struggled. I struggled. I have to say, she's she's just. <laughs> I mean, I guess with the the Zoom age, like you know, that, that whole thing like picture people naked. Like no, you just picture someone just like from the neck up. I feel like it, it makes it a little bit easier. Yes. Like well, but you're a head in the jar, so like you know, like uh, so. I mean, like yes, your books are brilliant, and you're smarter than I'll ever be. But um, also. You have no lower body as far as I know. You're just a box, just a
1: box like the rest of us. I mean, yeah, I've been such a fan of Melissa's for such a long time. I was kind of like running the tape back in my head of how long I've been reading her work. And it's got to be something like 10 years. Right, right. I have read all of her books, and I'm going to shout them out one by one. I I actually wanted to shout out the person who first recommended me Melissa's work was the sex worker and activist and incredible feminist Lorelai Lee. I once asked her what she thought the best sex work memoirs were, because there are a lot of them and they aren't all the best. And this was like Whip Smart. Melissa's first book was like top of her list. And I read it and I was so not disappointed. It's a phenomenal book about sex work, about addiction, about coming of age, about many things. Then she follows that up with the incredible Abandon Me, which we sort of reference in the conversation Mm -hmm. vis-a-vis her sea captain father, which... Abandon Me is such a challenging premise that I think she pulls off with such panache. It's a book about the fear of abandonment, where it comes from, and how it behaves through an entire life's worth of relationships. And, uh, you know, as she talks about in the book that we're talking about today, Body Work, that evinced some ethical concerns that she had to then confront and then the only book that I'm missing before body work is the incredible memoir girlhood which I don't even know how to describe it except to say that like it is feminism um (laughs) And like every feminist should read it. But anyway, with that long winded intro, today we are talking about her craft book, Body Work, which I think has been hotly anticipated for a while. Certainly by me. Yeah, certainly by me, and I think also by others. But like Melissa has really emerged over the last couple of years as a real authoritative speaker on the craft of writing, and in particular on the craft of personal nonfiction and, um, the art of writing about your navel without shame <laughs> this yeah, is one way yeah. I would characterize it. But how would you describe body work?
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a defense of navel-gazing done the right way, right? Yes. It's pushing back on the notion that somehow there is something less than writing personally focused creative nonfiction. On the other hand, there are really interesting questions that it brings up, yeah. and then you can do it badly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ultimately, you know, she's an essayist and a memoirist and a critic. Um, but it 's not hard for a critic to read out of it a certain set of aesthetic proposals, mm-hmm. suggestions, norms, as sort to of say like yeah if if that is the path you want to go down here 's probably how you want to do it yeah. or here here 's what worked for me, and here are some things that I think are a little questionable mm-hmm. um to me that it felt both extremely generous, extremely personal, but at the same time uh you know there's certainly things there that I underlined and was like must reread my own essay make sure I don't do this you know like <laughs> totally. which is which is a given given that you know she and I lived very different lives yeah. um, right down to the sea captain fathers which I do not have I think is, is something quite remarkable and I it really think that the amazing teacher she must also be really came through very beautifully in our conversation.
1: Oh my God. I'm so jealous of her students. Yes. Can you imagine how long the waiting lines must be for her classes at Iowa? I mean, people must like ritually sacrifice things to be in her class.
2: Uh, um, Just a quick, uh, quick note, dear listener, do not sacrifice things to get into classes.
1: It's not a good idea. You know, Melissa would not want that. You know, you
2: get the whole goat spray, you know, like mess. Like
1: who who has the time to clean all that up? We know that, that farm animals are easy to come by in Iowa, and yet
2: <laughs> let the goats live
1: the... well i guess if i had to like boilerplate summarize this book which no one is demanding but i'm gonna make myself try it would be something do it, like "Do it. <laughs> it would be something like anything less than the barest truth is boring and here's some tips as to how to coax that out of yourself Mm -hmm. you know because it's not like even if you sit down with every intention of writing the barest truth you know that's hard to do, you know, and, and there's, there's self-sacrifice that's inherent in that too. So I just think it's such a generous book in how she, you know, we talk about how she illustrates nonfiction ethics through her own fuck ups. (laughs) And uh, I just, I I think it's incredibly generous in that way. And I honestly think this book is going to change some young authorial lives, you know, like, I I think this is a real, a real act of feminism, this book.
2: Well, should we just, uh, I mean, I feel like we've, we've, we're preambling a lot and, and really the, the best, Ugh. the proof of the pudding will be the in best the best is in yet the reading. to come. Yes. Uh.
1: Yes. total. Well, I do want to mention that, um, I don't know what time is anymore, but this book Body Work comes out on March 16th from Catapult. I've already been recommending this book to people, so you're going to want to get that on your list. A sap yes. from an independent bookseller. Yeah. Anyway, thank you for joining us once again. We will walk ourselves across this feminist bridge. Once again, here's us having a wonderful conversation with the wonderful Melissa Phoebos.
2: Enjoy. Thank you for writing this really amazing book and it manages to bring together all these different things in so little time in some way. We really, we move from one thing to the other so quickly. And mm-hmm. one of the things that I got really excited about was this idea very early in the book about a betrayal of one's own experience, the way we're taught in writing or in having opinions to move away from experience and how that somehow makes it more than. Right. And you point out that it doesn't apply to everyone equally. That especially women, of course, get accused of navel gazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I find it really striking. The part of it that I had not thought about is that you also put it in terms of craft, which I think is one of sort the, the central mm-hmm. ideas of the book. That you know, it's evidence of craft if you move away from your experience. I guess my question sort of is: Can you say a little bit more about how you then decide what stories you read, write, tell, and uplift? Right. I mean, like, what's the craft behind then? Not betraying one's experience because in the end like right I can we can tell bad stories about our own experience or good ones or, or interesting ones or generative ones as you sort of survey the landscape how do you read and
0: write and critique That's such a big question Adrian <laughs> um, but first of all I just want to thank you for being so kind and generous about my book I could say more about that but but it's really appreciated especially at this point when very few people other than like me and my wife have ever talked to I've never talked with anyone <laughs> except my editor and my wife about it so it's really nice to get the positive feedback oh, so. well wow. Oh that's
1: cuz this hasn't come out yet this is like hot off the press yeah, okay it's... this is exciting I oh, no, we
2: are like therapists
1: <laughs> I'm ready this I've is... been in therapy for 17 years and I am ready <laughs>
0: You know, I actually just started with a new therapist and I had a session this morning. So I (gasps) am primed. I was like, oh, I wasn't even planning on that. That's like
1: a major event, Melissa. New therapist. Like, very exciting. What's your gut feeling? Is it a fit? It's totally
0: a fit. And it's it's that weird experience, right? Where, like, you know, I feel like this a little bit before interviews, too, where going into it, my anxiety rises and I'm like, we're not going to have anything to talk about. I have nothing to say about this. Like, I don't have any issues <laughs> or feelings or thoughts. Like, this is going to be so awkward. And then she asked me one question and I, like, start crying. Yep. And don't stop talking for <laughs> the next 10 minutes. So um, gird yourselves. Yeah. <laughs> Every time. Every time. I'm ready. But in answer to your question, Adrienne, which is a great question, I could try to fit the world into the answer. I will resist that urge. <laughs> but I will say that, you know... This morning, I was reading, I'm teaching this um, class on critical writing, like criticism, sort of for creative writers right now. And I assigned them Audre Lorde's The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House, which I hadn't read in a really long time. And I was so moved reading it and just so... I'm going to cry already. This is the first question. But I was like, um, it was just so clear to me how fundamental... Lord's work and that of like a lot of the feminists of her generation informed my thinking informs everything I've ever written and indeed like she's basically describing intersectionality before we had a word for it and right. I looked at you know it's like not for another um, five or six years that Crenshaw coins the term but that's what Lord is describing where she's basically saying it's a trick right? It's a trick to say, this is the only metric by which we can measure the value of something. And it is a patriarchal metric, right? By appealing to artists and telling us we need to prove ourselves by this metric, it's tricking us into disembodying ourselves, into discrediting our own lived experience, our corporeal experience, our domestic experience, and narrowing the doorway of what what kinds of wisdom we can draw on and value and use to live our lives by like a a catastrophic Mm. measure, right? So I think it's really similar. And what I'm talking about in this book is just like one manifestation of this, right? Where, you know, when I started writing, I was like, okay, I have to write fiction and none of it can be based on my experience. I cannot even draw from the bank of imagery from the places (laughs) I'm from. It has to be pure invention, pure intellect. And the stories I wrote were abysmal. They were horrible failures (laughs) because I was completely disenfranchising all of the tools. I had and all of the like real lived intelligence that I had. And as soon as I turned toward my own experience, Mm -hmm. my work was, I mean, it's not even comparable, you know? So for me, I think it kind of had to be that clear. And of course it was that clear that there was just no other way, like there was no other way for me that to integrate all of the parts of my life, my bodily experience, my lived experience, my interior experience, my emotional experience was the, mm-hmm, the route mm-hmm. to my best work and my most um, my greatest opportunities for transformation and liberation. Right. And I think that there's a corollary for that in probably like every area of living like, right, you know, women in business, I'm sure it's the same thing. So I don't know. I, and I think in terms of what I read, like, it's not a very self-conscious process, you know, Mm -hmm. but I do, I definitely am looking for things to read. And I think about it very mindfully when I teach and when I'm building my syllabi, like, you know, my syllabi have all been like people whose identities and social experiences could be described as intersectional, Mm -hmm. like for the last Mm -hmm. 10 years, at least, you know, Um, that's not even a thing. But in terms of what I'm reading, I think it's also like, I, I have an increasingly refined sensor for when I'm reading something where the writer has not quite reached that point and they're still trying to sort of suppress or shove away aspects of their own experience or intelligence. And I don't say that from like a judgmental point of view, but the more attuned I become in my own work and self and in the work of my students, the more I can sort of Mm. sense and and critically read sort of the integration of an author as evidenced in the work.
2: Yeah, I mean, I have to say that there's a line early in the book where you say like, you know, where you kind of unpack this, this presumption that like, oh, no one's going to want to hear your story, but at the same time we have the corollary where like everyone would want to read a story made up by that person, and 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 it I put that in no the book it was like, oh, holy shit, it makes no sense, like when you put like, it like that. Yeah,
0: I mean, that is the shocking fact in my experience of most like, discriminations, most bigotry. Like, it's just the most, the crudest logical fallacies. It almost feels, like, extra yeah. offensive because of how crude it is, where it's, yeah. like... Or just, like, the pseudoscience of, like... Anything used of like race or gender difference or it just doesn't hold up under any scrutiny. The second None. you blow on it, it shatters. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> I know I know that this is not how a writing life works, but as you were describing sort of your personal transformation from someone who envisioned herself writing fiction to someone who saw herself writing nonfiction, I'm just picturing like Melissa waking up one day and being like, My dad is a sea captain. Like why would I ever have to make
0: anything yeah. up? <laughs> (laughs) And that's before we even get to the dominatrix part. (laughs) I had a moment once where I was doing an event with a very clever friend who was like the interlocutor for my conversation and and they sent me ahead of time, a list of like interview questions for the event, which were all fake and just like a joke. And the first question was like, did your parents design your life as a Decemberist song? Like, is that... (laughs) 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 Like, how does that feel? Um, and, and which was hilarious, but also yeah, exactly. I mean, it was.
1: I'm like writing the song right now. Like I could sing it. I know. Yes.
0: Yeah, I'm instrumentalizing. You know, yes. It was perfect. It was. It's very. <laughs> they're a very funny person. Um, but there really was, you know, and I think it was less sort of like smug and more ecstatic when I was yeah. like, wait a minute, yeah, like I can just write from the images and places and landscapes and just thinking about like the metaphors I use, like, they don't have to be things I have no experience of. I can just use like the ocean. I was like, oh, fuck, this changes everything. (laughs) (laughs) And then it was like, my writing became good, like almost instantaneously, (laughs) as soon as I started using what I had inside of me instead of like groping for things I had no understanding of.
1: Sure. Well, and I love the like, just all-too-available metaphor of your therapist mother, like, telling you that the only time she starts to nod off during sessions is when she Mm -hmm. suspects people aren't telling the truth. And Mm -hmm. it seems like that's a similar process of discernment to the one you've learned to apply to nonfiction. Yeah, exactly. if it's it's not true, it's boring.
0: Oh, yeah. And let me tell you, the short stories that I tried to write before I switched to nonfiction were nothing if not boring. They were catastrophically Mm. boring. They were just, like, me (laughs) like running, long ornate descriptive circles around the thing I actually wanted to write about. It was like I just want to go back and like make amends to every person in every creative writing workshop before I switched <laughs> to nonfiction because they were also not short. They were like 25 pages of obfuscation. It was a nightmare. You should
2: do an annotated version, an edition of them, be like, here's what I <laughs> yeah. didn't say. Juvenile uh, yeah. right.
0: <laughs> right. Right. Here's the this is what this was actually about. This is and it will be right. a map to like every Everything I've written since then.
2: Yeah. That's what ends up being the kind of the politics of this book, right? That like because I was thinking like the the one thing that you'd hear from probably a creative writing student worried about this transition that you describe is that well I haven't experienced enough or I haven't experienced anything and like that's ultimately it right that like through thinking about fiction mm-hmm. we talk about which experiences are real and mm-hmm. and kind of worth it and which ones aren't mm-hmm. I think about that a lot about how this is really mm-hmm. used to kind of make certain experiences un- unsayable mm-hmm. and to sort of say like you're damned if you mention them you're damned if you don't right right it kind of it can be this kind of ghostly presence yeah and meanwhile if like you know and I don't want to make fun of any specific writers but like i got a recommendation like during covid where someone's like oh this very old very white british novelist is fantastic and i read like four books and it's like every book starts with like him contemplating his dick i'm like (laughs) it it is just like my level of interest is just like not peaked i'm sorry like i'm
0: like which one is it though yeah
2: no and he has a booker, like he Dick talked his way straight into a booker. But like, it's really... somehow that is like old man looks at shriveled penis, like somehow was an experience that I got to enjoy like four times in four <laughs> novels. And I was like, I'm done because <laughs> I know what book five is going to start with. And I'm like, I'm sure he's experiencing it. But like, I'm sorry. Like, it's just just um like, who decided it that really like, is... one book would be fine, right? It's a part of experience. But like, I
0: know. I just know. like the confidence
2: to make up the, the subject it really is yeah. i
0: mean i really think it's just it's totally all of the things that aren't allowed like there is a precedent for men oh, being yeah. able to do them and i don't blame those writers for this because no. it is interesting to describe one's aging body yeah. it is an occasion to like wax philosophically yeah. about our own mortality and so on and so forth but a woman describing like her aging vagina it's just imagine, you know. There's yeah. Just I can't
2: no... think of a single example. Basically, yeah. Mm, it's, it's Joan it's, Rivers.
1: Joan yeah. Rivers would go there periodically. Yeah. Oh well, but yeah, but she's yeah. an outlier. God like that's not typical. Yeah. Right, yeah. It's true. It's <laughs> like let us give credit where it's due.
0: <laughs> I know. Yeah, I do yeah. actually feel like we're on the cusp. There was this um, wonderful book. Darcy Steinke wrote this book about menopause recently. The beautiful, like mm-hmm. mixed form lyric essay book. And right before it came out, I remember I had been having a conversation with a friend and I was like, I just feel like we're ready to stop looking at these incredibly ordinary, you know, like most of great literature, great literature, scare quotes is about like these ordinary acute experiences, Mm -hmm. right? Like really common experiences that we experience as very isolating, very piercing, very life-changing and devastating in you know ways good and bad. And there's like a whole category of those kinds of experiences that are designated female and therefore haven't gotten any kind of treatment in terms of like the Western canon, at least. And I was telling my, I was like, I think we're ready. Like, where is the menopause canon? I am ready. I want to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. S- Similarly, like the writing from sort of like the asexual community, like Ace memo, like, I think we're publishing has finally caught up enough that there's like a little opening for these books and i am ready for the floodgates to open so Uh that um we can get all of those i want to hear the description the vaginal descriptions in detail so many in vast detail detail. yes i want the booker prize awarded to like middle-aged vaginal descriptions.
2: yeah book after book just like you know volume five
1: Volume five, Labia Two.
2: <laughs> it'll be it'll be House Guard. <laughs> it'll be it's called My Badge or something like that.
1: Do <laughs> not mention that name to me.
0: Mine Badge. Yeah, Mine Badge.
1: Exactly. <laughs> I would like to palate cleanse this okay. discussion of I think
0: we're ready. dicks
1: by returning to the crying over Audrey Lord part okay. because mm. I am here for mm. it. So, like the uses of the erotic <sighs> seems. Like such a spiritual mother to this work.
0: It's a spiritual mother to me, <laughs> <laughs> to everything, to ev- like I just would I was like
1: jumping out of my seat a couple minutes ago when you were talking about how like everything that feminism is talking about now is shit that black women were beating yep. the drum out about yep. minimum forty yep. years ago, probably more like fifty, sixty, eighty, or a hundred, and like Audre Lorde is. Ground zero yep. for this yep. Right? I'm looking at I'm looking at the uses of the erotic And I have to read a little bit Please, I'm
0: always ready for this Well, it's so informed It's so,
1: inform- it's so mm-hmm. illuminating to mm-hmm. body work I mean, the erotic is a measure Between the beginnings of our sense of self And the chaos of our strongest feelings It is an internal sense of satisfaction To which once we have experienced it We know we can aspire mm-hmm. That sentence changed my entire mm-hmm. life Still does, like, every day For having experienced the fullness of this depth of feeling and recognizing its power in honor and self-respect, we can require no less of ourselves. Mm -hmm. I mean, we could go deep for four hours on just like the mastery of the diction of that incredible paragraph. But thinking about it more conceptually, I mean, it's about embodied Mm -hmm. wisdom, right? Mm -hmm. It's about the intuition that lurks within Mm -hmm. us if we only pay attention. And like the essay as it unfolds, I think is also about how in broad, crude terms, the more we listen to that inner voice, the louder yep, it gets, exactly. you know? And I was thinking about that as you were talking about your process of discernment with how you can tell the truthiness of nonfiction. Mm-hmm. So I'm just really curious. I just would love to hear you talk about Audre Lorde.
0: That's my question. <laughs> but
1: like, how do you see this work informing body work? Because it seems I mean, so this crucial work, to me. None of my
0: work would exist if it weren't for her work. There's just, you know. What would exist I know, if not really, for her? <laughs> I'll stop. You know, yeah. I don't know. There's so much I could say. I was just like, you know, raised in the bosom of like second wave feminism. (laughs) And so I have a lot to say about it and definitely critiques of it. But I don't know, you know, like when Girlhood, my last book came out, it was like, and I don't really blame people, but it was super annoying because in interviews, people were like, oh my God, this was so timely because of me too. And I was like, first of all, Feminism is timely until patriarchy falls. Like, it's never not timely. And me too... Is feminism and feminism has been happening for centuries so like there's nothing new here not
1: a trend it's, yeah. i have not
0: done anything timely this is what i've been writing about for my whole life and and you know women have been writing about for much much longer than that so it's just like i am like a little pebble in a stream of this shit um and i just so much of what i find myself trying to describe in my work is so in that in uses of the erotic she has that weird and perfect metaphor of like a little piece of butter in a plastic bag, and how, like when you massage it, the yellow it, butter, the margarine. margarine. When you yes, massage yes. it, it spreads out, and it's like this beautiful, totally bizarre, perfect metaphor for how
1: and very dated yeah, for, too for yeah. how
0: the how the, what she's calling the erotic, which is like, could be called, you know, liberation, integration, however, whatever the popular terminology is for every generation, but just how it spreads, how it just like spreads like an oil until it covers everything. And, you know, she has another line of that essay that I love where she's basically like, it can apply to anything, building a bookcase, making love to a woman, like anything, writing a poem, you know, like it's just, it's in everything. And I feel like, If there is sort of like a thesis or like idea that's manifest in all of my work and that I'm just finding different ways to describe, it is that, right? And in this book, it's that Mm -hmm. the process of writing is not discrete from any other process of sort of liberation and integration. It's happening in my relationships. It's happening when I build bookcases. It happens when I'm reading Audre Lorde. And, you know, that line that you read like it also just taps into something so deep in me that meets it with this surge of like sort of like giddy elation and also terror, right? Mm-hmm. Because that is the, that is like the, the dynamic that is at the root of social movements. Like if we look at this, if we look at this dynamic, if we look at the people who are harmed by these dynamics, we will have no choice, but to do the work that it calls for there's just no, and once you succumb, which starts with the self, exactly. It's like, once you start doing it, you're in it. Like that's it. You can't stop. You are, that is your life. And that is so beautiful and powerful and terrifying because Mm -hmm. it's um, to some extent, hopeless on a grand scale, if you ask me, but, but it does have the power to transform me and my relationships and make my life feel worth living. So there's that. Well, in essence,
1: the opportunity that she's calling up is the opportunity to consider that our values anywhere are our values everywhere, right? Right. So what we value in the bedroom mirrors what we value in the classroom mirrors what we value in the family home and on and on and on. And that's a tremendous amount of accountability to be called up to sort of... Calibrate our lives to our values in all of those arenas using the same yardstick. You know, yardstick know. feels like a phallic metaphor that's wrong here, but you know what I mean. You know, like the same <laughs> metric. I know. This is a penis I, we're measuring it against.
0: I know. I'm trying to think of this. It's like a measuring cup, something. I've also seen you wrestle with what,
1: what words should replace seminal, which seems related to this kind I go with germinal kind of like, now. Yeah. I know. I,
0: I like with, that. I, I like germinal, that. Germinal, you know, uh, yeah, because that feels... You know, I, I mean, does it does the beginning need to be associated with anyone's genitals? I mean, come on. No, Can't, it's the agricultural.
1: Totally. One of Lord's yeah. favorite words was generative, you know, like and that has yep. nothing to do with that sort of construction. Yeah. which
0: I love exactly. Yeah. I mean, exactly what you're saying, exactly what she's always saying. And so many other, you know, Adrienne Rich, so many other yes. thinkers. But, you know, there's this moment in Mindfuck in the sex writing chapter of this book where, Like someone was like, I remember an editor had a question about it where I was like, oh, no, here I've arrived at a thesis that in all honesty, I had hoped to avoid. And it's exactly (laughs) what you just articulated where I was like, oh, I was sort of digging into my thoughts about writing about sex and my experience of reading sex scenes. And I was like, oh, right. It's just like everything else. Like if you want to hold yourself to that standard of the erotic in every area of your life, then in order to write an integrated awakened liberated truthful sex scene like you must liberate your own mind and your body and your sex i was like fuck i don't even know if i'm ready for that
2: (laughs) it's also the moment where sort of it's negative becomes very very stark right the kind of writing that fails to or declines to Mm -hmm. that hides behind like oh it's art you know like i write this stuff but i don't live it or whatever right like we've all i mean I teach older literature, so like I have to do this all the time, where I'm like, well, you don't know if this person really did this. Yeah. But it's like, it's exactly, you're grappling at that moment with the unalignment of those two things, which is always a factor of privilege. It always, mm-hmm. always hides behind this, like to me, very narrow sense of what art is and what is it allowed to. It's like, well, it's not about being allowed to. It's about is this ethically right? And should I be reading it, right? Like it, mm-hmm. you can write it all mm-hmm. you want, but it's going to be garbage, right? Like, um, and I, so I think that that was a moment where, you know, you kind of, again, like illuminated practices that frankly, you know, not only we let people get away with, but that like get, get valorized where precisely mm-hmm. the measure is supposed to be different mm-hmm. for literature or for the essay. Literature, capital for, L. For, for life, yeah.
0: Yeah, right, right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's once again, it's an example of just how crude the mechanism is like, oh, right. Yeah, we see as valuable those representations that reify the power structures that undergird our culture and have for centuries. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, it's shocking, you know, like (laughs) uh, representations that threaten that are discredited and deprived of attention and not seen as serious and Mm -hmm. they don't meet the metric. Right. So I know it feels very simple. Um, And, you know, it's There was a way when I was sort of thinking through this and thinking through it by writing about it that I was like, okay, but what about fiction? Like really imaginative fiction. And I thought about the friends of mine who write like fantastical or speculative fiction. And I was like, they're not doing anything differently. They're just thinking through it with a different kind of diorama. It's It's just just a different
1: logic. The game
0: pieces are just like wearing cloaks and riding centaurs or whatever. They're still (laughs) enacting... The same sorts of um, inquiries and challenges and integrations and you know most of the fi- most of the novelists I know could speak directly to at least after the fact, sort of the the allegories of their work and mm-hmm. how they corresponded to mm-hmm, like these mm-hmm. very same sorts of questions and struggles that the memoirist is is tangling with mm-hmm.
1: was just thinking about Mindfuck and its tremendous accomplishment, and I thought that the question I wanted to ask was, like, how did you manage to pick so many of my favorite sex scenes in literature? I mean, you're firing off Eileen Miles, Cheryl Strait like, oh my god, heavies (laughs) coming in. But then I realized that's not actually the question I want to ask. I would like to talk about what I'm going to call the tyranny of the audience Q&A for women writers of nonfiction. Um, In that essay, the example you specifically cite is the woman who had the absolute nerve to stand up and ask you, do you have any shame? Which I could talk for many hours about that alone. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. I wish that that story didn't connect with 25 other stories I could name. Of women mm. nonfiction writers, basically being met with completely inappropriate interest in mm-hmm. not the work mm-hmm. but the life, right? Right. And I think that this problem is many times greater for women of color than of white women. You know, I oh, know yeah. Sher- Cheryl Strayed oh, yeah. has very long Q and A lines, but I think the questions get really damaging with women of color. It right. can get really damaging. Right i'm also thinking about just how much you've written about how much you struggle with people pleasing and self-presentation mm-hmm. not that you struggle with self-presentation but you struggle with how much you owe the public i'm thinking of your catapult right. essay do you want to be known for right. your writing or your which was just name checked <laughs> by roxanne gay in work friend in the new york times I know, today I
0: like why are- <laughs> Was popping up on Twitter and then my wife was like, Roxanne checked you and work friend. So
1: Well you. that yeah. piece has a really you I looked it up, you published that piece in twenty seventeen and that's been mm-hmm. one of Catapult's most read essays of all time. Like it's had a yeah. really long tail so it clearly yeah. struck a nerve. <laughs> Can you talk about your feelings about that audience Q&A? And like, if we could arrive at any recommendations for how people can frankly do better, I would love to find them. But I'm just curious for your thoughts on that forum.
0: Oh, gosh, where do I even start, Laura? Um, Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I'll speak from where I am now, because, you Mm. know, I published my first book in 2010. And it started before that. I would say it started in classrooms before that, when I started bringing, as soon as people started reading my work, which was very much about sort of sex and the body. And, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, this dynamic that you're you're talking about that really reflects sort of the, the hierarchies in our culture, right? It's like as soon as a woman makes herself visible or is visible in any kind of outlying way, people just believe that they have full access to her body and self in whatever way yes. it's the same thing that i experienced when like i developed early as an adolescent sure. it's like the sure. second that my body could be perceived as sexual it was everyone had license to sort of comment and touch and pregnancy pregnancy, pregnancy people also operates this women, way yes wild wild
1: and you're also talking about the way that people Mm self-deputize to put women Mm -hmm. in their place and it's just like why? same thing it's like
0: you know even having tattoos i've had tattoos for a long time right and i cannot tell you how Mm -hmm. many other women in public or total strangers have been like "Ooh, it's kind of manly to have that many tattoos don't you think (laughs) um it's really amazing meanwhile Mm. like touching me without asking for my consent, um, sure, sure, and I know that this is so much worse for women of color, for disabled women. You know, it's just like anything that makes you different is just like Walkins Welcome to anyone yes, who exactly. wants to comment on it well or said. police yes. you. Yes, you know. Anyway, so you know, when I first started publishing, it was I fell for it. Right, that same invitation to measure my experience by a metric that I didn't believe in and that was actively sort of designed to subjugate me, where they were like, Oh, aren't you ashamed? And then I would argue and defend myself, you know? Engage. Yeah. Which Except is engaging, the premise. right? Yeah. Which is exactly accepting like stepping into that framework with them. Mm-hmm. And I would say, like, by the end of my time promoting my first book, I got a lot smarter about it. And I realized that I could respond however I wanted. I did not yeah. have to answer questions. And I really got very good at people being like, so anyway, what about your body? <laughs> and I would be like, you know, it's really funny. That question about my body reminds me of something about my writing. And then I would just talk about my writing. Just <laughs> and,
1: pivot, yeah. And yeah.
0: people don't even, you know, it's like people asking those questions don't realize that they're complicit. They don't realize that they're policing you to make your body docile in Foucault's words, you know, like they don't know that they're doing it. So they're not even really mad when you step outside of it. They're just confused. Like, oh, okay, I guess we're talking about this. And similarly, you know, like I remember when that book came out, it was very confusing for the people I worked with because they didn't know anything about my work. And then suddenly I was like on NPR talking about like, spanking people and um and they would be like i heard you on the radio and i could see the confusion where it was like do we punish you and i would just be like thank you so much thank you you know (laughs) and just like it has become in most circumstances an occasion for me to like offer a different framework to be like interesting i see what you're doing there What about this instead? And a lot Mm -hmm. of people, most people are like, oh, interesting. We can talk about it that way. Okay. Or just being like, you know, it's interesting because this really isn't about my body. It's actually about this. Mm -hmm. Um, And over time, because I've had so much experience of this, it actually doesn't feel that uncomfortable to me. It doesn't feel threatening to me because I understand that I have all this room outside of their question to move in. I don't have to suddenly dive through the eye of that needle, you know, um, and, and it has been a huge part of how I teach, you know, I was and gonna I think say this feels very professorial, this level. Of yeah, skill. it's yeah. very, um, it has really fundamentally informed the way that I talk about texts and the way I talk about authors and the ways that I frame those conversations with my students, because they come in with the same, you know, uh, conditioned responses and the same implicit biases and the same ideas about serious literature. And I'm very intentional in the ways that I talk about texts and the ways that, without shaming them, I frame our work in the classroom as one of the margarine in the plastic bag, you know, where we're like, we are trying to awaken in ourselves, in our lives, through an examination of texts and our own work. And it's mm. the same thing I'm mm. doing in my writing, it's the same thing I'm doing in my friendships in interviews. It's all the same work.
2: Another way of putting this would be that a lot of these questions aren't really questions, right? Like they're being the, the asking right. of them is the act of putting you in, in your place because it's reducing yeah. you to something. And so in some way, if you yes. refuse to answer or you just answer differently, in some way you're you're not actually even refusing the logic of it because the whole point was right. to remind people right. this person has a body. Yeah, and maybe we should talk more about that. Yeah, and if you just say, well, nope, yeah. we're not gonna, uh, you know, in some way you, you just sort of points out that logic too—the fact that like these are questions that aren't real questions.
0: And I think, you know, sometimes there is sort of like a more aggressive, like, I'm going to put you in your place because this is threatening. But I think more often and particularly when it's other women or people of any kind of marginalized identity, it's coming from an anxiety. Yeah. Right. Like, I know the rules. And do you know the rules? Like, this is against the rules. (laughs) Like, is it okay? This is I've learned that this is dangerous. And we need to enforce it, right, because we've internalized, like, the perspective of our oppressors. And so, like, that's the understanding that allows me to lean into or even sort of feel eager about stepping towards that and being like, oh, no, 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 sweetheart. Like, we don't have to do that. It's okay. It's actually, like, there are no repercussions in this space like we actually can just step outside of it it's just a mirage you know and I find that oftentimes both in the classroom and in Q&A's like if I really approach it with a kind of like openness and love and like security in my own sort of relationship to those structures. Other people respond in kind and they're like, oh, okay, we can have a different kind of conversation about this. Like we don't even have to talk about that. We can just like push it aside. And that becomes like a much warmer conversation, right? Because I, I'm not defending myself. I'm, I'm welcoming them into this larger space. <laughs>
1: Yes, totally. No, that feels so generous to me because, as much as I believe that some of those questions are coming from a confrontational place of of like putting up an author in her place. So, too, do I believe some of them are just coming from a place of fumbling awkwardness of just like, oh, my God, I want to talk to this person who named something that I could never name, you know, Mm -hmm. and there is an earnestness in that sometimes that I think your pedagogical approach honors in a really beautiful way. Right.
0: Like I get students and this makes sense in the last few years, I get students in our conversations or in our workshop being like, oh, wait, but you can't say that because other people, someone might interpret it this way and then get mad at you. And I was like, are you thinking about Twitter? Like, are you thinking about the person on Twitter who's looking to willfully misinterpret your work? And I'm so excited to be like, no we do not write to those people. That is not who we're writing for. And I'm so excited to tell you that you don't have to think about that imaginary person when you're making. Yes, yes.
1: Oh God. Okay, so as we're talking about the voices that worm their way into students' heads and Twitter looms so large, Mm -hmm. like it's inescapable. Mm -hmm. As someone who teaches the craft of nonfiction, one of the things that I was most appreciative of in body work, I mean, if I could even make a list, was how explicit you are of how you've reasoned through the ethics of writing nonfiction of people in your life I mean there is no question that comes up more you know in in my own classes and Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I really appreciated your approach and I'll detail it a little bit for people who haven't been lucky enough to read body work yet like essentially you you provide a roadmap through your own fuck-ups you know of like where Mm -hmm. you landed Mm -hmm. on the wrong side of the line and how I think that's a brilliant way to instruct this and obviously an incredibly brave and generous way on your behalf to instruct it. But I just think I think that sometimes we can't learn those lines until we transgress them, you know, so just to read a line from the book that I would love to hear your thoughts on. Here is what I now believe. I do not have free reign to write my story of events that happened to someone else more directly than they did to me. If I want to write about my own experience of such an event, then I ought to talk with that person about it before I begin writing. You know that's a fight. That's a shot across the bow a little bit. That's not what every practitioner mm-hmm. of nonfiction says. Like there's the famous sort of Anne Lamott chestnut of like if they wanted to be portrayed mm-hmm. better, they should have treated you better. I like you. I'm a people pleaser who really likes having personal relationships with people who like me. <laughs> so right. I would love to hear you talk a little bit about how that process went in that chapter that I think is so important.
0: Oh uh, yeah. I mean, let me just say I there are a few lessons in life that I haven't learned by transgressing the boundaries that's how I learn (laughs) where it is I trip over it and fall flat on my ass on the wrong side like that's how I learn lessons I wish it could be another way and my hope is like with this book that other people who are a little more prudent will maybe be able to to not make those same mistakes um but yeah I very much sort of had a kind of mercenary fuck it approach to writing about other people and I think I had to take that strong of a stance in order to do it because I am so because I care so much what other people think it had to be you know sure sometimes in sort of conversations about codependency there's a phrase detaching with an axe um and it's used to describe people who are just learning how to have boundaries where they're like to everything.
1: Oh, that's recognizable. Yes. Yeah.
0: And I think that's sort of what I had to do in the beginning because writing this way flew in the face of all of the parts of me that had spent my whole life managing other people's feelings and their perceptions <sighs> of me, which again is sort of why I needed to write this because it was all locked up inside, like weighing me down. Um, Paging
1: Audrey Lorde. Yes. I know. Go on. I, know right? so I was like, <laughs> all right, I'm going
0: to let it fly. And I just have to like say, fuck it. So take a running fly at this. Um, and that's fine. That's how I had to do it. And then I experienced the fallout of that. And mm. I'm not talking about the strangers who asked rude questions and Q and A's, or even my exes who sort of like, had hurt feelings necessarily. But like the people I love, and who in every other way, I am careful and tender with and, and I had to do a lot of you know, reparative work in those relationships. Yeah. And with every book, I figured out where my boundaries are, what when the conversation should start. And you know, it's it's tricky too, because I think in order for me to sort of get where I am in terms of the work I've done and in my relationship to my work. I do think I really benefited from kind of a harsher perspective on it and thinking I just have to prioritize the work, right? Because Mm -hmm. everything about our society encourages me to privilege other people's desires and wants and labor over my own. And so the the whole conception of of leading an artist's life requires like a radical reorganization of values, right? And so I think I really did have to take that running start and be like, no, no. My work before everything else, including the feelings of the people I love, like yeah. in front of everything. And then, you know, now I'm really oriented to that. Like I do privilege my work and my artistic practice over most other things, and the people in my life know that. But I, I have the room to be more nuanced in my negotiation of mm-hmm. specific yeah. circumstances, right? Like it doesn't threaten my artistic process to have a conversation with someone I love before I start writing something. And it's okay. I also got out the most bottled up, intense, like secret burdening things. And so now it's like, it's okay for me to not write something I think of writing. That's all right. I can let it go. Like I have relationships in my life that are more important than things I might want to write. You know, And the the opposite I'm sure is gonna be true again at some point where it's gonna be worth hurting someone's feelings to write something I really Mm -hmm. need to write, but I can really take it on a case by case basis. I don't have to have like a harsh rule of thumb that protects me from having to navigate the granular individual experiences.
1: There was something about that that felt so much more practical to me Mm -hmm. than the maxim of like the writing always comes first. Like implicit in your stance is an acknowledgement that people might need relationships. <laughs> which right. just
2: feels like a practical acknowledgement. You phrase it as let the writer win, which does seem mm-hmm. like it's this absolutist statement, but it isn't because the writer is also, you know, you say, you know, a good employee, good teacher, mm-hmm. good friend, mm-hmm. good daughter. And so it means you get to do anything if you want it badly enough. Right. But yeah. Um, yeah, how how badly does this need to be here? And are you ready for the consequences, yeah. right? Because it doesn't excuse everything. That's or right. it, well, it might excuse it, but it doesn't inoculate you from the consequences, right? It says like, well, yeah, like th- this might destroy some stuff.
0: <laughs> exactly. And I think that goes back to this, like, I don't actually want to go here. I'm just going to touch on it and move on. But like this larger sort of... Uh, national discourse around sort of the consequences of writing things. And the people who are experiencing consequences are like, I'm being censored. It's a witch hunt. And it's like, no, being censored is being stopped from actually saying something. No one's stopping you. They're just responding. Right. And that is something I've experienced in my own life where it's like, Oh, right. I can write whatever I want, but it doesn't mean that there won't be consequences. And for me, like going back to what feels like the core of this whole conversation with y'all, it's like, if my larger mission in life is one of integration and liberation and love, which it is, like, is the power of this thing I want to write, do I estimate that the power of that is going to be greater than the power that results from being engaged in and responsible to this relationship and this person that I love, right? And it's not always a clear decision, you know? And, And sometimes it's like the the relationship is real. I know what that means. The essay is hypothetical. And so like at this point, you know, for me, it really has been a relief in some ways to acknowledge that, like, I don't have to write everything I think of. I don't have to tweet it. I don't even have to say it to anyone, you know, like at this point, silence is free. Yeah. Like I can withhold things. Um, and it feels good to choose, to protect other people, sometimes like that—that that yeah. satisfaction can be as great as letting something fly that I've been holding onto, you know.
2: Well, in fact, frankly, th- this is the part of the kind of people were mean to me online discourse that I find the most revealing. It's like <laughs> it's an acknowledgement of the power of your writing. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's precisely yes, yes. potentially hurtful to other people because Good it point. comes from a powerful place, right? Like they're not just saying, oh. Now people are mad at me online. They're saying, "Now people are are mad at me online for something I wrote to get people mad at me." And it's like, I yeah, you know, mission fucking accomplished, <laughs> my dude. Like that's that's the way it goes. Like and the same way that like, yeah, if you <laughs> open up a relationship to scrutiny mm-hmm. because you think it's interesting, like, yeah, there is Exactly. There is dynamite there. Yep. Right? There's just dynamite there. And and yeah, like it's I fully understand that like, you know, like what wouldn't it be horrible if you could open up part of your life and everyone's like, yeah, that's fine.
0: Yeah. <laughs> right?
2: Like, yep. Everybody's like, yeah, right? Like, it was like, oh, okay, like, whatever. Yep. Like, you know, like uh, something about milk cartons or whatever, right? The power comes from the fact yep. that there are real human relationships implicit in it, which means people might get hurt.
0: Yeah, that's what makes it interesting to write about. That's what makes yeah. me want to write about it. You know, if it was sort of anodyne topics do not have the magnetism <laughs> that makes me want to write about things. Yeah, yeah absolutely.
1: I want to be mindful of your time because you've been so generous with it. I guess the last question I have is in addition to the younger version of ourselves that I think all nonfiction writers are writing towards to a degree, who was your imagined reader for this book? You know, who do you want to benefit from this
0: book? You know, with every book, I have this sort of same answer. And I, with every book, I think it's going to be a different answer. Like, I think I'm going to have someone else in mind. And it's just, I don't every time. And I really think it's, it's, basically someone who fits the profile of my younger self, right? Like I'm just writing into the thing that I needed, you know, the thing that would have relieved me sooner and all of the, which doesn't mean someone who fits like my demographics necessarily, but the person who has that story, like fizzing inside of them, like a little bottle of champagne and just like needs permission to pop their cork. Like this is absolutely for them. You
1: know, I, yeah, I picture, I picture this book with a lot of pleasure in the hands of like a young female writer at about 18 or 19, you know, this could change the whole course of that person's path. You know, that's, yeah, Yeah. like my
0: hope is like, whoever those writers are, like, we'll get an extra book out of them because they got that permission sooner, you know? Um, mm. oh my, I can't believe we're out of time. I feel like we just we started are, talking. I know. <laughs> I know,
2: and it's it's, it's, it's such a rich book. There's a whole essay we haven't touched on yet. <laughs> I think that there's just uh, this is a good case to keep talking about body work some some other time. Uh, I would love yeah, to. that
0: would be really fun. That would be really fun. Thank you for this conversation and just for the ongoing conversation that you're having and making space for it. I'm so grateful.
1: We are so grateful to you, Melissa. Thank you for you joining us today. Thank you
0: okay take care bye y'all bye thank you
2: the Feminist Present is co-hosted by Adrian Dobb and Laura Goode. It's produced by Laura Goode and edited by Megan Kalfas. All of our original music is by Julie Herndon.
1: We are eternally grateful for funding support from the Institute Named for a Woman in a building named for a woman, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University, where we are especially grateful to our feminist colleagues Cynthia Newberry, Allison dahl Crossley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, Wendy Skidmore, Shivani Mehta, Carolyn Asante Darty, and Morgan Kanan. The Feminist Present is also co sponsored by the Changing Human Experience, producing deep ideas for a better world by supporting Stanford research in the humanities and social sciences.